0: I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Books. Let's start the show. In Caroline O'Donohue's most recent novel, The Rachel Incident, the eponymous Rachel is finding her way as a young person in Cork, Ireland. She's a student of Promise and an employee at a bookstore where she works with her best friend, James. She imagines a life in and of books, perhaps as a writer or in publishing. Her rather ordinary life is suddenly turned upside down when the embers of a crush for her charismatic professor, Fred Byrne, are doused when it is revealed that his affections are for James instead. Rachel finds herself in a complicated foursome in which she'll take a job with Fred's wife while helping to spin a web of lies and deception required for James and Fred to proceed with their affair. Told in a wholly original voice, in waves of comedy and angst, the Rachel incident dramatizes a moment of youthfulness in which transgressions against friends and those in our tiny social orbits ripple outward and change lives in unexpected and sometimes tragic, sometimes beautiful ways. A story of many kinds of desire, loves of every flavor develop, evolve, bloom, and die on the vine making The Rachel Incident a very different sort of love story. With every turn of the labyrinth, we find that Caroline unsettles our commonplace assumptions, our gut judgments, and our prejudices and preconceptions. Both seated in a tradition of campus novels and fully distinct from that lineage, The Rachel Incident captivates precisely because it keeps you guessing while asking you to look back at your own youth to find, perhaps, some tenderness in its foibles. Caroline O'Donoghue is an Irish author, journalist, and host of the award-winning podcast Sentimental Garbage. Her previous work includes a trilogy for young adults, the first of which, All Are Hidden Gifts, is under option to a major international indie, with Caroline adapting it for long-form TV drama. On publication of her first novel, Promising Young Women, she was shortlisted for the Irish Book Awards Newcomer of the Year and the Kate O'Brien Award. Her next adult novel, Scenes of a Graphic Nature, was published in 2020 and is in development as a feature. She has a regular column for the Irish Examiner. Caroline was born in Cork but currently lives in London. Welcome to the show, Caroline.
1: Hi, Chris. What a thoughtful opening. Thank you.
0: I really am am so glad to get to talk to you. and i'm I'm looking at the cover of the Knopf edition of the book, and what a gorgeous, gorgeous painting. And I looked up the the painter. He's an israeli painter. and i and I wonder if you had any say in 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 the wonderful painting that we see on the cover.
1: Do you know what that's such an interesting question because i um no I know I, I didn't select that painter. I hadn't heard of him before. Um. Before they found that image, and then when I ha- did see his work, I reached out to see if I could buy his work, and <laughs> it's far too expensive <laughs> for me. <laughs> yeah,
0: I was wondering if you owned it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I would like. Do you do it in the postcard? <laughs> 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 um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm hoping that someday when when Rachel gets made into TV, that I can, you know, I'll be my art owning era. But um it's interesting that you bring up the cover, um, or, and on I mean your covers actually, because. This you know the this was uh, simultaneously brought out in the u k. and the u s. and on the u k on the u k cover, it's this sort of um a photograph of a of a young woman with a sort of a fairish hair with her head turned away from mostly from the camera. And in the u s. cover, it's a woman with sort of fairish, ready hair with her head turned away from the viewer. And in both cases, both sets of fans have reached out to me or readers or friends living in other countries have reached out to me and said, is this you? Like, either is this a photograph of you Um, in the case of the English cover or is this a painting of you, the US cover? And purely because I'm a, I'm a woman with that sort of hair. But I think what they were really getting at is um, frequently with this book, more so than the five that have preceded it, I have been getting some version of the question, is this you? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I find it really interesting to get um, for the first time in your career so far in, you know? Yeah, yeah, because usually that's the first book thing, right? Totally, totally. And I think I have um, really sidestepped that. First of all, because my, my first book was um, very much inspired by a kind of Angela Carter, Daphne du Maurier style of literature, where I was playing with the gothic and the unreal and so because grown ups are like, well, I don't believe in magic, so <laughs> <laughs> um, no place in truth. Um, and then the, so my second novel was told from the point of view of an English main character who was also a lesbian woman, and I'm demonstrably not an English or a lesbian. So I got off the hook with that. And then, and then I had a trilogy for teenagers that once again was about magic. So I got off the hook with that. And now because this is a book that is... Um, mimics my own autobiography in in quite visible ways and i don't mean to say that because i'm some famous person but i find it increasingly interesting that we have this new way of reading novels whereby yes, nobody no. is, is it, nobody's ever reading a novel without their phone six inches from them and if i like a novel for example i just read um tom lake by Anne patchett and i didn't really know very much about Anne patchett but Suffice to say, I was Googling Anne Patchett the entire time to see what might map up. And I mm. and it's interesting because the Rachel Incident is a novel where the most amount of details line up in a way that readers are therefore tempted to say, is this you?
0: That's fascinating. And I I hadn't thought of it precisely in the in the phone terms, but that's oh. so right. We just we we've got the phone there next to us while we're reading, whether oh. we're, you know, good boys and girls or not. And <laughs> yeah. And then we're, you know, we're googling, we're finding details, and we're saying, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that she went to school there. Well, it must be that precise yeah. moment and that okay. campus. And, but I also, you know, as a as somebody who thinks a lot about contemporary literature, I always want to push that a little bit aside uh, and and allow fiction to to exist in in worlds that certainly can have details from one's life, but that. In all sorts of ways, destabilize that notion. Do you do you want that as a writer, or do you encourage the sort of like Google and and
1: Absolutely, in that like I am I'm in your camp firmly, Chris. In that, I ca- I sometimes can't believe how hard how hard people find it to grasp that writers take details from the lived experience and then. Mm transport them into unreal experiences and they're <laughs> in this fiction it's like i can't believe every time a new novel comes out like 12 times a week in every literary paper we have to be like hmm, <laughs> it's, so, it's so crazy to me that we have to keep relearning this lesson and for me it was it was a deliberate prank um, mm-hmm. and, or or whatever, whatever you want to call it in that i wanted to have this this girl who she mimics my autobiography in that we both grew up in the same place. We both emigrated at the same time. Um, and we even have some sort of similar, similar physicalities. but that you would be reading this novel that feels very much like, okay, this is someone going through a recession and struggling with love and friendship. It feels like a, you know, a, a fictionalized memoir. And then you have this character doing these, in many ways, unconscionable things, and mm-hmm. it gets very naughty and almost like a soap opera very uh, quickly. And uh, it's sort of like, what I always read like, oh, did this, did this happen to her? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think they think. I think they think writers are are braver or or something, that yeah. they would want out these extraordinary transgressions and terrible things they've done, supposedly, in their fiction. But I, I don't know many writers who love to have that sort of splashed out in the world, the worst exactly. moments in their lives.
1: No, so, yeah, it feels like a... I don't know, it's quite school marmish to be like i'm teaching you all a lesson (laughs) (laughs) how dare you ask another female writer about her life i'm gonna use my life and then blow it up you know and use the bare facts of my life and then create the most salacious soap opera you can dream of, you know i I mean it's a needed lesson
0: so school marmish or not i i I think fiction loses a little bit of its power if it's always just a, a mirror of autobiographical details
1: yeah. And it's also, I mean, the, as somebody who thinks a lot, a, lot, a lot about these things, I'm sure you're in the same boat where, you know, I'm thinking like, okay, well, you know, there's the, the cliche of like, okay, w- uh, women, particularly young women use their personal experience in order to uh, write uh, fiction, that wink, wink, we know it isn't fiction kinds of thing. Um, and then it's like, okay. So then therefore we have to go out of our way to prove that we research or prove that we make it up. You can often, time and time again, when you see authors and interviews, and they're almost going out of their way to tell you how much they were in the New York public library lo- learning about trains. <laughs> <laughs> they're like so, so awkward about having even had a single lived experience that then became a chapter. <laughs> the imagination is the most personal thing What we have. It is completely made up of yeah. human experiences and emotions and like, you know, I, I don't know. it It's a real bee in my bottle. I like get sometimes. I realize it's completely circular arguments
0: <laughs> no, no I, I I agree with you entirely <laughs> i I think it's somewhat of a misnomer to call the Rachel incident a campus novel, but mm-hmm. that's but that's somewhat the case with all campus novels as they most often find their drama off campus. That's mm-hmm. certainly the case here where the city of Cork. The bookstore where James and Rachel work and Fred Burns' apartment are the storehouses of a lot of the plot. Mm. But that said, it is a novel about students and professors, about a certain moment in our lives in which we're incredibly naive while feeling quite worldly. What's your take on the campus novel? Was that a tradition you had in mind when you were writing this? And how does the university itself play as a character or a space or a mood in the novel?
1: It's so fascinating that you say that about campus novels because even when I think of them now, they, all of the great campus novels that I love, like Brightside Revisited or The Secret History, have very little to do with the colleges themselves, even though even Brightside is so famous for that Oxford vibe. But it, I, think, I feel like it's like maybe a fifth of the novel even happened to yeah, Oxford yeah, the rest yeah. is in memory. And I think what's interesting about campus novels, and as you say, all the great ones, they don't feature the campus that heavily in Secret History. It's almost like that—that that sort of um, that fake Bennington College or whatever it is. Um, it's like the character, the main character. It's like what he can't. What he—he he, he thought he could come to a university to find some kind of either artistic or internal or social enlightenment. And then he turns to this group of people because of what he couldn't find there.
0: Right. Yeah. It's so yeah. disappointing, the actual right. campus that right. the, the fervor of these students outside of the the campus walls yeah. is yeah, what totally. it seems to fulfill it or promises and then fails to.
1: Yes, exactly. So I think all good campus novels are about the the promise and the disappointment of what you think you're gonna find at university versus what you don't find. And I think um that's that's really interesting to me, because obviously if a, a true campus novel would be about going to classes and <laughs> joining joining the drama society or whatever, and that's not interesting. <laughs> um,
0: Although I will say a, a recent one that does spend a lot of time on campus, both its, it's two books, actually, is um, Elif Bateman's uh, The Idiot, followed by either, or I don't know if you've read those. Huh?
1: No, I haven't. I, um, I, I certainly own them. But <laughs> I, well, I mean, here in they're to time. they're yes,
0: they're, they're, re- they're really extraordinary. But they she does just make the campus this like the omnipresent thing, and you know, so perhaps that's uh, the exception to the rule. Really, yeah. I when I when I think about you know American campus novels, first of all, there's just a billion of them right now, and they they all stretch and and twist the the tradition in, in wonderful ways. Uh, but I, I wonder about because, you know, campus life is very different in in Europe and, and in Ireland than it is in the US, where you tend to have these very residential campuses and everyone is living on the campus itself versus apartments around the place. And I wonder if you sense that that lends a difference to, from US versions of the campus novel to ones perhaps in the Irish tradition or UK tradition writ large.
1: It's hard for me to say because I think almost everyone you speak to about their university or campus experience, the first thing they say, and maybe maybe it's just unique to my household and and me and my husband, but it's it um everyone seems to say, oh I, I wouldn't really know what the normal experience is because my experience was X kind of thing, and and I, yeah, that's obviously everyone's un- personal experience is unique to them, but my personal experience of university was slightly unique, I guess, in that I grew up in this university town, which is Cork City. And um well, I mean, it's unfair to call it a university town because I guess that implies that the only thing that's happening in the university. there's more it's like the second biggest city in Ireland. You know, it has kind of tech companies and things like that. But the university is a huge part of the city. And so when I was quite young, I would say fifteen or sixteen, I you know, I had a lot of older siblings. And I was always borrowing fake IDs from somebody or somebody's girlfriend. And I was kind of, I sort of had a very active nightlife from quite a young age. And um, then by the time I got around to actually, so so in between sort of my teens and time to go to university, the economy really crashed and the, it made no sense for me to spend a lot of money to go to a university that was out of town when I could just live at home and go to university for quite a, a low price, really. And so what What that sort of affected in me was I was 18 years old and attending university and all these people who were coming to Cork from different places all around Ireland and in some places, different places all over the world and to have this exciting experience. And I sort of felt like a chewed up old whore next to them. I just felt like I've done it all, I've seen it all. <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> and, and everything was just sort of so exciting to me and I was so bored and so sarcastic. And mm. then I also had this experience where um my English course was so huge. And this also mimics Rachel. So huge that like it was impossible to kind of gain any purchase socially. Uh, yes, yeah. Um, And every time you would talk to somebody in a seminar, you suddenly wouldn't see them again and then you would find out they had dropped out. And so I just found it, even though I'm a pretty social person, I found it really hard to do anything other than attend classes at university. So I would attend classes and then I would leave and I would go work at my job, which was um, at an HMB, which I, I believe is like the UK and Irish equivalent of like a Virgin Megastore. Okay. Um, yeah. And that was like, that was a very, that was where my life happened, I feel, for those three and a half years where... That was my Empire Records, where just people stood around and talked all day about books and music and really lit each other up. And th- then I thought, fa- I got w- when I finally got around to writing the Rachel incident a year a year and a half ago during COVID. Anyway, um, somebody said to me we, I was having a similar conversation as like this about campus novels, and they were talking about you know obviously Sally Rooney's Normal People and uh, Maeve Binchy's Circle of Friends, and about how oh yeah sure. Never, there had never been a Cork campus novel, and what that mm, would look like. I was thinking they were all yeah. Dublin ones. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, that got me really excited—the idea of like what a Cork campus novel would look like. And then I, th- I remember saying to that person, I was like, "Well, it wouldn't. For if I were anything like that, all of it would take place in the person's part-time job, and that's what ends up happening with Rachel incident." Yeah,
0: and it really does, it separates it from a lot of the, the campus novels I've read recently. And I did find that fascinating that it, it takes place in Cork when so much of the Irish scene seems to be dominated by Dublin mm. and and even Trinity in particular. Mm-hmm. But, it, um, but that idea of Rachel finding, you know, a social life, a intellectual life, a cultural life in her part-time job, and also how the economic recession is, is making her wonder, what is the value of this education that she's getting? Is there going to be a job or is it just that you have to leave Ireland no matter what? And that the way in which the, the recession creeps into the bookstore and its, it's possible demise, uh, it, it's there everywhere. It has its tendrils in all parts of the plot. And it seems assuredly that you wanted to to make clear that that moment that everyone had that on on their minds all the time. Can you talk about the the economic yeah. straits and how it just involves itself everywhere?
1: It's so fascinating. I, I wonder. I wonder if you're like the, this, Chris, where if you have a set of memories but you don't have anybody to talk about those memories with, the memories simply fade. Like for me, mm. memories are always activated, animated, and embroidered by chatting about them. Yeah, and, absolutely. And because I moved here 12 years ago, I, I very, very much because of the recessions, so I moved in 2011, and I moved to London, and yes, there was certainly a backsplash of the recession happening in that graduate jobs were impossible to get, and the cost of living was very difficult, but on the whole, people were getting by the way London always gets by. And then I you know, made my crowd of London-centric friends and all of them were either from other countries or from other places in the UK. And nobody had quite had the experience of the economic recession the way that we had in Ireland where it was so concentrated and so shocking. And I think a large part of that is to do with the fact that um, the kind of... The, emergent middle class in Ireland is, is quite a unique thing in that like it was such a poverty stricken not even poverty stricken because that makes it sound like it was sudden a more of a poverty soaked country oh. <laughs> um for so long for decades and then you know in the in the early nineties things just turned around and there was this sort of class of new money that was so exciting and and very much the the world I was born into. and pretty much everybody I knew had money in some way. like even people who like they they didn't live in an amazing neighborhood but they still went on two holidays a year and had, you know, great stuff on their birthdays. Mm. And then, in two thousand and eight, it all changed so suddenly. like i I went to a to give you sort of an example of it, I went to like a very uh, lovely girls' private school in the middle of Cork City. And when I was at the beginning of sort of my, I guess, in Ireland, in America, you'd call it your sophomore year. Um, second year of high school or... Okay, no, the, the second to last year. Oh, okay, uh, is junior. Oh, great. So when I was in my junior year. Oh, something was very exotic. Which, <laughs> makes, which makes no sense, but... <laughs> no, it makes no sense. I not understand that. Now, so many... So many teen movies will make sense to me now, but before <laughs> uh, when I was in my junior year, the my year had maybe hundred and sixty pupils And by my senior year, there was i think forty pupils left in the in my year, you know, because everybody had left oh my gosh wow because their 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 parents could no longer afford the fees, you know and um, or maybe there was other reasons, but that's certainly then that that was certainly how the numbers shook down um. And so, yeah, I just don't think that many places were struck in such a dramatic way. And so for many years, I almost before lots of people from my childhood started emigrating over as well. I had no one really to talk to about this stuff. And so I just sort of forgot it happened. And then during COVID, I, um, my friend Ryan, who was kind of part of the inspiration for the character of James in the book, he was living close to me. We both bought bicycles the way everyone bought bicycles. And we used to, we started going on like walks and bike rides together. And we would just talk about what it was like back then. And all of these memories sort of came flooding back and just became em- embroidered by conversation. And it just felt like, you know, when you're a writer and you realize that you have a unique perspective on something and that your life experience wasn't necessarily wasted and it could have value or insight, you you, you want to pin that down as quickly as possible, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: That's really interesting, that idea about memory as something that if it's not shared, it disappeared, uh, it disappears. I, I certainly find that true in my own life. But I, I think it's interesting how then a novel, either through discussions you're having in real life or discussions you're sort of having against a, the sounding board of the novel itself, mm. brings those brings those memories into existence. And it seems like that happened here. Uh, It's the case of with many campus novels, that they delight in recounting the bad behavior of male professors with most often <laughs> female students. It's almost omnipresent, not always, but almost. Yeah, yeah. You play a wonderful sleight of hand by making us think that Rachel's crush on her larger than life professor, Fred Byrne, is going to go in that direction. And then you sort of pull the rug out from underneath of us. And we mm. find that that the questionable behavior is, in fact, with James breaking that paradigm. It, there is a double transgression there that adds new life to this very old story of power dynamics. What was interesting to you about changing that paradigm?
1: I, I find it really fascinating in general to have, um, to, to, you know, I, maybe, I don't know, Maybe this will be something I realize the further I get into this. I, I really like pranking the audience the reader <laughs> um for you, for example my first novel and young women it was um very important to me that it opened as if it were a bridget jones diary or maybe a nick hornby novel or a marion keys novel which mm-hmm. i'm a fan of all those things usually um but then that it would slowly become this kind of uh angela carter thing or a daphne DeMoy that were just felt like gothic and unreal and um and how how fun that is is when it, when a reader is expecting that they're they're treading down a very well trodden path and then they realize that there's all these spooky scary trees have grown up around that path. Mm-hmm. Um, and and with this, it was like taking this extremely expected and quite boring trope at this point. And I think for me, part of exploding that very boring trope was. I'm sorry, that's that's mean, boring. I mean, lots of people do very exciting things with it, but you don't even... It mean can to- be boring. I mean, it, it can feel overdone. Overdone, yeah. And I guess it's overdone because of the common story. And yeah, that's not great for society, but... Um, no, no. But I suppose in the post kind of Me Too era, and my first novel really dealt with, with that a lot. It actually kind of, it was very, very strange in that I, I wrote it, in 2016, it came out in 2018 as the Me Too movement was happening, and it was very much a response to uh, sort of sexual power dynamics in in workplaces. So it was a very strange moment to be in the middle of. My predominant emotion was 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 rage, and I think I also worked for like a feminine a feminist website, and I was in my late 20s, and I just felt this. Forcing rage all the time um, at what women were forced to go through, and and also rage that the things that I found attractive were also the things that were looking to destroy me. And for that, I don't mean specifically men. I mean men seeming powerful or 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 being domineering, or all these things that I knew were red flag behavior, in that they often led to more exploitative things. But I was also attracted to. And how annoying that is <laughs> and, um, and I felt like I had a very un I sort of even though I've been with my partner for ten years, i this I this kind of callous grew up and around me vis-a-vis male behavior in general and men in general, which didn't I mean, I still love my brothers and my friends and my boyfriend, but I just felt really impatient with all of it. And as time has moved on from that moment, that impatience has worn away. And I i guess I'm more interested in like Dr. Byrne is a very shady character in that he is sort of risked it all just to drink from the fountain of youth. He's deeply cowardly. He's incredibly selfish, but I also feel such tenderness for that character and the things that he's a victim of and why he does the things he does. And I just feel a real softness for him. And there's parts of the novel where Rachel, she breaks off from recounting this man's things that he did to her and to her friend. And she just starts crying because she can't believe how lovely he was in some moments. And mm. that was that was a part of, I, I wanted to really dig into that. And these things are painful because because we love these people, you know? Yeah. I guess that was why I wanted to, it wasn't just out of a prank instinct <laughs> to really piss off the reader or to wrong foot the reader. It was also very much a, well, how do we keep loving people who wrong us and, all uh, you know,
0: again. And, and I feel like novels are so much better equipped to give people nuance, even who are craven and mm. make bad decisions and, and yet, the the way a narrative can texture that can can give moments of of beauty and goodness to someone who seems like they don't deserve it in in a moment when I feel like all of our other forms of media digestion of news pillory, no matter what. And it's More. and there there is no there is no gray area, and there is no room for someone being both things, both having mm-hmm. done horrible wrongs. And having human qualities of goodness about them, yeah it doesn't mean that those people don't don't deserve some of the pillory that happens. But at the same time, the novel reminds us about a a kind of universal humanity,
1: yeah, exactly to- yeah, totally. It's interesting because I was um this is kind of a different subject, but hopefully it leaks back. um the I don't know how much this Russell Brown conversation has been hitting the u s and,
0: yeah, a little but, bit. I I've just been following um It a touch with the BBC dropping him and everything.
1: Yes, yes. And so so obviously it's 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 hideous and and even more obviously, every single person I know in London knew about it for years. And Gosh. why isn't that always the way? It's always the way. Always. Um like I remember being at a Christmas party two years ago and somebody was telling me about an experience they had with him that was just the most devastating thing you'd ever heard. But how I've noticed in the coverage of it, there was this interesting um, the way they, because obviously nobody has footage of these terrible things that he did. They use the stand up and the um, bits on the BBC shows he's done or panel shows he's done to illustrate the monster that he is. And using sort of like very problematic uh, bits of speech or whatever. And I'm not saying that, that those things aren't evidenced of. What a monster he was, but and is. But what those clips taken out of context are suggesting is, and we all went along with it and look at all the audience laughing and smiling, and we're, uh, he's a monster, but aren't we monsters too? Aren't the villagers holding the torches as bad as Frankenstein himself? Kind of that's the sort of message we're supposed to get from that. And it's interesting because having lived through that moment firsthand, I was like, well, yes, okay, yes, people are laughing at his as, as he made these jokes, but I think they're missing the context of that particular moment, which was kind of the early noughties, of when, like, it was... There, we had just come off such a toxic time for... Or, I mean, it's always toxic time for women, but toxic time for women in the media where it was, like, you know, circle of shame, like, circle the woman's cellulite in the magazine. Like, who's gained weight? Who's lost weight? Like, it was a really... Horrible. Britney very good crotch shots. I actually talk about this in the novel quite a bit, um, and all this sort of Paris Hilton sex tape and stuff. And what was appealing about the Russell Brand thing at the, in that moment was like, well, here's this guy, and he loves sort of the the sort of like the raw rutting mammalry of us all just like sweating and fucking in the mud. And there was something exciting about that in the moment of this guy just kind of like strolling out onto the BBC and being like. Women, you can be as gross as you want. I'll fuck you. I'll fuck all of you, <laughs> you know? And, it's, mm-hmm. and it was it was so interesting that, like, in that moment, that felt really rebellious and really interesting. And I remember being interested in it. It's, it's just amazing how the framing of these things changes as you get older. And it's it's tempting to boo at the people in that audience who are cheering. But you kind of also have to understand where they're coming from, you know? Yeah,
0: I, I, that's really nice contextualization, and and helps me understand a little bit better why he was so popular in that moment.
1: Yeah, yeah. and it was, and he was everywhere. It was, it was ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. It was It was an omnipresence over here. Sorry, this is not a, yeah. a podcast. It's just on my mind a lot this week. <laughs>
0: no, of course, of course. And it, you know that, and this is these are fundamental questions in the Rachel incident. So it's they 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 parallel. Yeah. The, This is a novel that's so much about voice. Rachel's cleverness, her wit, her observational powers make this narrative feel fresh and new. I I wonder how the nature of its backward-looking perspective, Rachel's recollection of this peaked time in her youth, makes that voice or made that voice an interesting challenge to you. She both has to carry the wisdom of having lived through it all and come out on the other end, while viewing it in, in recollections with something like a youthful naivete. What kind of hurdles did you encounter in trying to thread that needle? And did you find Rachel's voice immediately, or did it take you some time to, to grow into it and wear it properly?
1: Yeah, it, would, it was so funny. She came to me immediately. Um, it was lovely. It was really lovely. And I think um, it had a lot to do with the novels that I was reading, uh, rereading, actually. I had that thing during COVID where, you know, everything that I read that was new um, felt too difficult. So I just kept, I kept coming back to sort of old classics. And the two books that I reread during that time were, one of them is Brother of the More Famous Jack by Barbara Trapido. And the other was Le Divorce by Diane Johnson.
0: Mm. Oh, I haven't thought about that in
1: years. Oh my god, you should reread it. It's so good. It's so good. Um, but both of those also they're different people, but they're of a similar age, I think. They're both in their like late seventies or eighties now, and um, they write about young womanhood in a past tense perspective, and the the I is always this kind of very forward looking, sort of jolly narrative of like. Well, gosh, I was going around Paris and I was wearing a miniskirt, and men were saying horrible things to me, but Jesus, it was exciting to be alive, kind of thing. <laughs> 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 and and sometimes terrible things happen to them. And like there's some devastating moments in Les Divorce that really rip your heart out. But it's, it, I just, it really got to me how it was really coming from the perspective of somebody who I knew turned out fine by the end of it. And, uh, And that was the secret to finding Rachel. I wanted, it really struck me that I had read read a couple of books in a row um, where it was young, very young women going through their lives, uh, whether it's their struggles with men or class or money or whatever. And they were, because they were lived day to day, they felt grim, you know? And I remember my very early 20s, particularly just after I moved to London, it felt really grim, like, you know, never having enough money and always feeling unsure and how anxious I was all the time and how I was conscious of people, you know, making fun of my accent or whatever, you know? And that's as, as, as much as it is thrilling to say, poor me, it's also so boring to hear about on <laughs> on a day to day level where it's like, well, I went to a meeting again and, and the MD did an Irish accent and, and it was embarrassing and strange. And it's like, well, the other day Caroline who cares do you know what I mean like 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 you know it's it, I just couldn't I couldn't keep on stomaching this vibe of like present tense atrocities that aren't that bad because I I, I was just wearied by reading a lot of stuff like that lately and I, I thought maybe with a past tense we could put a little levity on things that were genuinely quite bad <laughs> hmm.
0: there is a way in which that that older self, Rachel, is wants to both inhabit that younger self and re, um, re embody it, so that she can understand those choices differently, because they they I yeah. think to to the older Rachel seem impossible that she made those decisions. Yeah, and 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 I like that that she wears almost that youth like a like a mask that she can play in again, and so yeah. it feels.
1: You know, I, I was thumbing through it um, in preparation for this podcast. I haven't looked at it in a little while. I noticed that a recurring theme that comes up again and again, and I think it might just be laziness on my part rather than a, a trope. But it's her constantly talking about parallel worlds. She's she she's like, oh, there you know, there's a world in which I said the right things to carry that day, and there's a world in which I did this, and it's kind of a constant refrain. And I think that's in. It's kind of, um, it's, a, it's a bit lazy, the writer, but it's also when you're thinking about your own life, impossible not to implement, right? Of like thinking mm-hmm. of all the other things that you could have done and how those worlds live in parallel uh, in your minds. It's amazing how we get any present tense living done when we have all these parallel worlds it's just living in our heads.
0: It, it's true. The 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 what if I had chosen path yeah. B is, is such a feature of our daydreaming life. Oh. Rachel's life and secrets that she keeps about Fred and, and James's ongoing affair ends up intertwining with her work and personal relationship with Fred's wife, Deanie, who, who she hopes will make connections for her in the publishing world. Deanie is smart, put together, and professionally accomplished, the very things that Rachel would like to be. But Rachel sees her as, quote, that clueless wife of my best friend's lover. It's a complicated mess of a relationship. How did it take shape for you in the creative process? And what did you hope would develop from this really kind of... Um, at first, it seems sort of tangential to the to the affair, and then it becomes central to everything that R- Rachel does and the choices she makes.
1: It's so interesting with her, because she's... With D- with Dini, I mean, it's like there's some... And I can't really explain it as a writer. And it maybe one well of those things that just can't be explained. And that's the magic of novels. But um some people you kind of build from the ground up, or you take a, you know, a bunch of people from your past and you glue them together. And like I often say that Rachel's boyfriend Carrie, he's like a combination of all the sort of men I've ever seriously been in love with. Um, and that is a Frankenstein portrait, you know. And but with Deni, she is just somebody who just walked in fully formed. And the first thing I knew about her is that she looks like Shelley Duvall in The Shining. Like she, oh wow, <laughs> and, and like you know, like a kind of um, definitely a, a, like I'm not saying that she goes you know insane or anything, but um, the or this kind of the, the all that black hair and those kind of unusual eyes and this kind of this fragility. But great strength as well. And there's something that, that, that uh Rachel says about Dean Early on, which is that it was like she it was like she felt very confident about being shy. Mm. And um I she's one of the characters I'm proudest of just because apart from Shelley Duvall, she's kind of based on nothing. <laughs> and um and yeah, I I what I found so interesting about writing her was there's lots of people who do bad things in this novel. Um, you know, I mean, every, I think everybody does something unconscionable in this novel, really. In okay. that, mm-hmm. um, Burn the way he treats James and therefore Rachel, and James sometimes the way he kind of continuously betrays Rachel, even though they're closer than family. But Deenie is someone who, you know, her husband comes to her someday and says, you know, I have this great student. Uh, she's really bright she's really struggling will you give her an internship and that's as far as Dini knows about it yeah and dee says well you know i can't i can't really afford to do a thing like that but sure I, I can i can find 50 quid a week and she can do some of my inbox clearance and then from there you know Rachel proves herself to be highly competent and herself and Dini build this relationship and she kind of really does become Dee's assistant and works with her on further projects but Dini is never inclined to pay her more and, mm-hmm. it, it, and it's this interesting thing of like she's exploiting Rachel the same way that, not the same way but similarly to how her husband is exploiting James and not to say that she's an evil character because she's certainly not but about how I thought it was interesting about how you can think that you're helping someone and know that you're helping someone but sometimes I guess I've experienced this a few times you know, when somebody, you become somebody's protege and then you, when you outgrow the protege role, mm. then it's it sort of, it's kind of existentially disarming for them to acknowledge that. So they just don't. And then, uh, yeah, and, yeah. And, yeah. And that's, and that's all that, that, that's Dini's real sin is that she just kind of won't acknowledge that things are have are changing around her, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. The, one of my favorite scenes in the novel is the dinner party that Rachel attends at Fred and Dini's during which she realizes that Dini believes Fred is having an affair with her. It is a masterclass in discomfort. Not only is she given the terrible cold shoulder by most of the guests, and certainly Dean before she knows what really is going on, but she's never quite sure whether they're dismissing her because of the rumored affair or because she is professionally beneath them and not worth their time. Everything has a sickly bile hovering over it, including this sort of fish smell that's making Rachel feel horribly nauseous. It must have been fun and also devastating to write, and I wonder how you shaped it and and how you wanted it to come off as as an encapsulated scene
1: it's so, I'm so glad that you brought it up it is It is the scene that most people bring up as their as their sort of favorite scene, and I do think it's probably the best thing I've ever written <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and uh I felt that way when I was writing it <laughs> oh,
0: that's well, that really happens. that's amazing
1: so, I know and it it's it's funny because um, you know you can you can you can sort of mystery of the flow state thing, I suppose that like you can turn up to your work every day for fifty days in a row and just mulishly you know, pour out words into a document, most of which will go and get re-edited and reshaped and for subsequent drafts. And, um, but this was like, it was, I think it was probably the only time I ever really experienced flow <laughs> in a yeah. truthful way where I was like, oh my God, it's just all happening. And you were like Kobe that. Bryant on the page. Oh my God. Yeah. The way I've been thinking about it was like, um, you know, Miles Teller and Whiplash. This is the kind
0: of... Oh my like, God.
1: <laughs> really, really, but for, you know, small dinner party scenes in Irish provincial novels. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I think, and I think that, you know, it was, it was a a, a really fun and satisfying way to bring many plot points together and explode them. But I think it was also born of, um, you know, she's Rachel is at least 15 years younger than every guest there and she's either even before she realizes she's been given the cold shoulder and she's not supposed to be there there's kind of this horror of her having to like like her her old lecturer is there and her lecturer's boyfriend is with her and the boyfriend sort of quizzes rachel to see how well yeah how good a lecturer his girlfriend is and it's witty oh horrifying and i suppose a lot of that i mean everyone has their own version of that in their head and a lot for me is that you know i'm I, I'm I'm frequently the, or for a long time, I was frequently the youngest person in rooms. Like I'm, I'm the baby of my family. Um, I was young for my school year. And I always, outside of school, I always had older friends. And even in London, people might not necessarily be older than you, but they're, you, they're frequently from a different class. And there are, basically in London, there are so many more ways to feel inadequate than you could mm-hmm. even imagine. <laughs> yeah. And... And and we've all had that experience where you know you've been at the dinner and you're like not only am I not wanted here not only am I not wanted here I I really I'm a almost oil and water chemical bond level don't belong here (laughs) and it Mm. I
0: I found the I found the professional insecurity that she was she was feeling to be so recognizable I can remember early on in my professoriate days uh, being invited to a party that was largely uh, attended by people at a much fancier university than than I was at and and kind of being in these conversations that would end very suddenly or the person would suddenly need a drink and oh, and it yeah. often was when they found out that I was teaching at this other place and I and I thought of Rachel in that moment and and yeah. how she so desperately wanted to see herself as possibly one day part of this kind of scene and and at the same time just feeling so so deprived of any opportunity to actually yeah. exist
1: there. Oh, it's horrifying, isn't it? Being a person is horrifying. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it is, and then hell is other people, so yeah. you got to do. I know, I know. The question of abortion hangs over Rachel's story because of the historical setting prior to the legalization of some kinds of abortion in Ireland the only option for Rachel should she decide to terminate the the pregnancy is it is a trip outside the country americans currently as you know are roiled with outrage and fear of, uh, after the striking down of roe versus wade and i wonder how you approach the question of reproductive rights in the novel from the irish context
1: it's so interesting that you bring up the Roe versus Wade thing because um, the novel was acquired by Jenny Jackson, who's been on the podcast before. Yeah, at, that's right. enough. <laughs> I just listened to her episode this this afternoon. It was lovely, um, and she acquired the novel. And the following week, Roe was overturned. And oh my goodness, it was just this the strange thing, I didn't know Jenny at all and I just, you know, other than having a couple of Skype meetings or Zoom meetings about the book and it felt it felt so strange. Uh, obviously, it's you know, I have no real heart in it, but to to, it felt like passing a baton in a way uh, in that so I, I grew up uh, constantly with the knowledge that if i were to get pregnant and if i were to therefore need a termination that i would have to go on this like difficult expensive journey and i don't think that was paranoid of me i think every single woman in ireland grows up with that and oh yeah and the thing is i think there's this um there's this expectation that abortion rights only affects the people who need an abortion but the reality is that actually but the the reality is is that if you grow up in a place where abortion access is incredibly limited, it changes your relationship to your body and your relationship to sex and your relationship to men and everything is hanged by this kind of cloak of fear comes over it, and everything is the domino effects mentally that leads back to pregnancy, and so therefore you are never carefree about your about your desire, and you. I feel like I probably have more sexual hangups than my London, not now, because you know I'm, I'm very sort of happy and in a very stable relationship. But I feel like I have more bats in the attic about that kind of stuff mentally in comparison to my peers who grew up in London or around it, just because of this one fact about the country I grew up in. And I don't think I'm alone in that. And I think it changes how men relate to women sexually. And I think it all... So it's funny because we we obviously when we talk about the fight for abortion rights, we think about the moment in which someone needs an abortion and those months and those weeks in which she can get that termination. But uh, no one talks that much about how it sort of goes into the soil of a culture sexually, you know. And I hope this novel does that. I mean, it helps people understand that. Does. But this is something I said to Jenny back then was that I, I I look around now and it's lots of my friends like to tell me about like, Jesus, you picked a great time to be Irish. And I was like, I did. <laughs> 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 you know, we are everywhere right now. We are everywhere in the arts. The country is more progressive than ever. Um, you know, Irish actor and particularly Irish women are everywhere. You know,
0: ah, uh, it seems that way. Yeah.
1: And when I was growing up, Irish people, contemporary, contemporary living Irish people that people were interested in, it was like Colin Farrell and Damien Rice and, and well, men, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, like roguish, sexy men and Irish women didn't really exist on any plane at all. Uh, I didn't know a single Irish woman sort of who was famous apart from Sinead O'Connor, who everyone hated so much that she killed herself. And... You know like that like she was well, even when I was growing up, which should have still been the peak of her power. She was a national joke, which is how she was treated. People were unendingly cruel about her, and there was
0: I, di- of- I did not realize that at no, all horribly because it's cruel. So different in the U.S.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, particularly in the last few years, um, once she her conversion religiously, and yeah, the Irish press was was awful about her. And even like someone like Dolores O'Riordan, who was in the Cranberries, who also, you know, committed suicide or Dolores O'Riordan, leading of the Cranberries, also somebody who couldn't do being an Irish woman and being famous. And then there was the chorus, I guess, who just sort of disappeared behind the veneer of, of um, sort of shiny hair and not really being themselves publicly, you know, they didn't they weren't like Sharon Horgan or Ashling B or Sally Rooney or any of the many women you see.
0: Oh, God, you... Sharon Horgan is, is such a gift oh to, the, to the world. I I, I I can't stop thinking about her and the bad sisters.
1: Oh, my God, I know. I know. And like Dairy Girls, I mean, there's so much stuff where it's just like Irish women yelling at you about how their lives are. <laughs> and, <laughs> um,
0: and I'm I, here for it. I'm here
1: for it and I'm... Uh, Trust me, Chris, I'm cashing in. Uh... <laughs>
0: <laughs> Do it. Run with it. Run
1: <laughs> with it, because the trend won't last. Um, so so anyway, um, I say that, be- I think I think part of the reason why we're so forefront of the culture, it seems right now, is that we lived with this incredibly um draconian set of reproductive rights. We overturned them. And I think, and when that happened in 2018 it was like this fury that unleashed and like it's like we knew how powerful we were we had fought for something for years and we had won and it was like this burst of energy that just flooded out into the world and like made everyone bigger and brighter and smarter and stronger and i i guess i just only i can only hope that happens in the us too you know i
0: i feel like we've already been made dumber and and more cowardly and 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 that it affects so many people's lives and as you say it's it's foundational it's the soil it it's everyone it's it's not just women it's it's the men in their lives it's their families it's the relationships at the very beginning of the relationship before you've even had intimacy to the you know to the very end when you have to think about going elsewhere for for an abortion um it like so many other things in the u.s it vastly over the burden goes to poor women, women of color first and foremost and in and in in more profound and immediate ways, people who can't travel. And yeah, I, and and you explained so beautifully how you can come alive after that. But I feel like we we sadly are in are in the, you know, the moment of the the last bit of soil being thrown on top of the of the coffin of that of that progressive yeah. moment.
1: Yeah, it, I'm so sorry. I really, yeah, I really am. I just uh, being an American right now. It, it, it seems from speaking to friends anyway. It, it just you must feel so helpless because the country used to feel so big and so powerful, and you used to feel like if it seems like agents of it, and now you're victims of it.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you would, you would, whether this was true or not, you could look out. Onto the world and say ah, we're doing we're doing some things right. You know, yeah. even if you knew there was a a, a longer, a more complicated history with lots of bad things, you could say ah, we're making some some choices and bending towards justice, and that that just all feels flushed down the toilet by 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 really a rather short period of time, which is always how it happens. Like history shows, yeah. you have these downturns that happen very quickly. But in, in any case, the, the the way that, you know, that history of Ireland that you're capturing there then contrasts with the present and and as you say, the everywhereness of the Irish woman is 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 wonderful. I, I want to so that we don't end on such a glum question.
1: No, I'm I'm having a lovely time chatting, by the way. I'd really enjoying this conversation.
0: Oh, me too. Me too. Um, I want to talk about the first book of your YA fantasy series, All Our Hidden Gifts, which happens to be one of my son's favorite books. Oh. I knew about that book well before I had this book on my on my radar, and I, I didn't know much about you other than that you were the author of, of that book. You know, it's it's obviously clear the ways in which fantasy the fantasy genre diverges diverges from so-called literary fiction, but I'm more interested in the in the similarities. And I'm wondering what kinds of overlap in the in the way you conceive of characters and the pro- creative product that you find between your genres of writing.
1: So I I still don't know. It's it's um it's fascinating to me because I'm I'm writing on a a new YA book right now, which is not in the All Our Hidden Gifts series kind of a standalone thing set totally in a fantasy world. So my fantasy brain is working harder than it ever has. Like it's an entire you know, when you're when you're inventing a new world, you have to do like entire systems of currency and religion and government. And it's it's such a huge mental task. Um and for me, it, it's weird I don't really have any friends who, who do this as well. So hmm. apart from my friend Catherine Rundle, who um she you know, wrote a huge nonfiction book about John Donne that was a bestseller. And then she wrote a huge children's fantasy that was a bestseller. But, you know, she's she's also, you know, just an angel. So it's hard to relate. Um,
0: yeah, that's that's about as far on the, the outer edges of that spectrum that you could get.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whereas I'm like, I'm like pretty... Successful as an adult novelist, and I'm pretty successful as an adult novelist. It's like, you know, I'm kind of just making my way. I don't know. Like, um, all I can say is that you know, when so to go back to my first book again, which was a, uh, contemporary fiction novel that included a lot of like magical realism. Very fairly, the critical response to that was like, you know, she's she's a pretty good writer, I guess, but she really. Like what like what's what's going on kind of thing, mm-hmm. and it was clear like it was it's looking back on that book, it's like somebody who's clearly extremely relate like extremely interested in like office world politics and real world sort of like people in rooms talking and how those conversations don't go to plan and then what happens next kind of thing um and somebody who is just completely enthralled by the impossible and what the impossible tells us about the now and how i don't know I, I there's there's something about pushing something to its absolute limits that really thrills me like for example within the all our hidden gifts series there's a there's a moment where these two girls are sitting on a bus and they realize there's a man who's watching him them and they're figuring they're trying to figure out what to do about this guy who's watching them and that's a very normal thing for teenage girls to go through right is to be uncomfortable because they're getting unwanted attention from someone they don't understand but then you know in the all hidden gifts universe that that person is literally a threat and he's following them and he's from this sort of like magical terrorist organization that wants to you know sap and kill them (laughs) and there's something really liberating to me about making all the internal paranoid anxiety anxiety driven fears of being a young woman and saying you have every right to feel scared because the world is scary and and look at them but then also julie being like you have every right to feel powerful because look how powerful you are and 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 giving these girls like literally magical powers to fight them off and there's something about that that finding those two extremes of like you are really this under threat and you are really this powerful. I mm. find that very exciting. And it's particularly I find, you know, the, the writing of my YA and the writing of my adult novels, they really don't feel that different when I'm sitting down writing them. But it feels very different when I'm promoting them. Because when you're promoting... Oh, them, of course. Yeah. 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 Totally. Because when you're promoting an adult novel, you essentially get to have lots of lovely conversations like this, Chris. It's like... <laughs> You get, uh-huh. like a lovely intelligent person asking you thoughtful questions and they have to listen to you forever <laughs> like, <laughs> but when you're promoting a young adult novel there is a, a legitimate public service aspect to it because you're going to schools you're working with charities you're talking to often to kids who like you know you're, you're for example you're there in their school because there's a, a, a sort of a grant system that, that means that every kid in that school got uh, your book for free because the local library paid for it because otherwise yeah. they wouldn't have a book you know um, and you get you get to be on the coal face of of that and you get to be in communities even if it's just for a day or a couple of days or a week if you're doing a teaching thing and that that's changed my life and it's you know Zadie Smith has this thing where she talks about she's not interested in being a writer unless she can be part of the commons and writing young adult fiction, it's it, the most where I feel like part of the commons, you know? Oh, oh, beautiful.
0: Yeah, I hadn't thought about that aspect of it, but I, that seems like it must be a wonderful and just community-entwined way of being a writer. I like yeah, that very much.
1: Totally. And also, nobody's interested in giving you a compliment, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, um, like, even the kids who love your work are, and and you in, in every classroom, you might get two who actually read it and who love it and they just want to tell you about the thing they're writing, or they want to ask you questions about how you did it. They're not, you know, they're not looking to impress you with a lovely question or a lovely compliment, you know. Mm.
0: Well, and that, and in that way, you 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 do away with the artifice, and it's it's really yeah. a much more a much more natural thing. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Although I love this, this feels very natural.
0: <laughs> Before I let you go, I, I would love to know what you were reading recently and and what you'd like to share with us and and recommend from your own nightstand table.
1: Absolutely. Um. So I I do think I mentioned to you already. I just finished Tom Lake by Anne Patches. I'm dying to read this. I haven't
0: I haven't had a chance yet. But I hear nothing but great things about it. It,
1: it. it is um so wonderful, and it's such a good. It, and be- I mean this is so self aggrandizing to be like if you like my book you might enjoy a little writer called Ash <laughs> <Aunt> Patchett. <laughs>
0: <laughs> do it. Do it.
1: <laughs> but you know it, 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 it it's um a kind of a a more grown up version of Rachel let's say um of uh, you know she it's this, you know woman looking back on this very formative time in her very early 20s when it felt like the life was her entire life was before her this extraordinary thing that happened and how it shaped her forever, um, uh, except it. this is set, you know, in the kind of early 80s, I think, and it's all in Summerstock Stop Theatre um, in Michigan. What's actually lovely about that experience is um, I had it on Audible where Meryl Streep narrates it. Meryl Streep, you're kidding me. Right? <laughs> By, way to go, Anne. Way to That's go, a... Anne, I know. It's incredible. <laughs> way to go. What's great about it is that, like, because Meryl Streep is like, obviously everyone knows her and loves her, but no, we don't really know that much about her other than like very spare biographical details. So because she's talking about being an actor in summer stock theater in the early 80s, you can almost believe it's Meryl's story, even though you know it isn't, wow. you know? Wow.
0: <laughs> now I have to, I'm going to listen to it on, on audio. Please do. It uh, can't, can't be missed.
1: Yeah, no, it cannot be missed. Um, And uh, so the other things I've been reading, I'm, I'm just starting tonight, actually, my partner is out, so I'm gonna start Zadie Smith's new book. Mm. So that's gonna be great, I think. Because actually that that story, you know, the, the Titchfield claimant that's based on. Yeah, yeah. I had just weirdly, I just finished reading this book, which I really do recommend. I can't remember the author's name, but it's called Washington Black. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's great. Yeah. It's re- I just finished that. I got it from my local library. I loved it. And I just, I'm really interested in that kind of period Victorian novel that's kind of these big, grand, sweeping adventures, you know? Another one I read, I read it for the first time this year, and I, I've had a hangover from it ever since, is uh, Jonathan Strange, Mr. Norrell.
0: Oh yeah, that's a such a trippy Dickensian book,
1: right? Like, yeah, I, I do sort of love that people having their take on on Dickens novels, even though I've never read Dickens at all. So, yeah, those are the big things right now in my head.
0: I I love those. I'm I'm about to read Fraud as well as A.D. Smith's yeah. one, and I'm and now I'm going to listen to Tom Tom Lake. Yeah, sure gotta hear hear Merrill do it right I, I just can't recommend enough the rachel incident to my listeners i i think it's really an extraordinary book and a wonderful part of that long lineage of university adjacent if not campus novels and talking with you has been such a pleasure caroline
1: i've loved it chris this is one of my favorite interviews i've done i really mean that
0: Ah, oh, that that <laughs> makes my my heart grow three sizes, and I have had the wonderful opportunity to listen to sentimental garbage, oh. and I want to recommend that as well. I, I think it won cultural podcast of the year. Am I am I right in thinking that?
1: No, uh, <laughs> yeah, no. Well, it's fine that you think that. Um, it's great that you think that. No, it won um the book podcast of the year at London Book Fair.
0: But that, uh, that's maybe even better. So please run out to your local indie and get a copy of The Rachel Incident and then have a listen to Sentimental Garbage. And I hope we'll have a chance to to talk again soon. Thank Thank you you so much. (laughs) Well, that's all from me for now. A million thanks to the brilliant and hilarious Caroline O'Donoghue for a wide-ranging and absorbing conversation about all things, but especially her latest novel, The Rachel Incident. Make sure to listen to her wonderful and side-splittingly funny podcast, Sentimental Garbage, if you happen to care even a little bit about culture, the high and the lowly. You can find links to purchase The Rachel Incident and all of Caroline's recommended books at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books.